Well, if you're new with us today, uh, we've been reading through the gospel according to John. And last week, uh, we came to John 13, in which John gives us his eyewitness account of what Jesus said and did during Jesus' last supper on earth. And uh, Jesus and his 12 disciples were reclining around a table up in the upper room of somebody's house in Jerusalem as they celebrated Passover together. And at this point, Jesus has very few hours left in his life. Um, He's going to be arrested and condemned and crucified this night. And so his time is very precious. And he chooses to spend this precious time with his disciples. And just like Moses gave the Israelites kind of a pep talk before he died and sent them across the Jordan River, so also Jesus here is giving a pep talk to the disciples before he dies and sends them out to the ends of the earth. And Jesus reminds the disciples about some of the key distinctives of the kingdom of God which should characterize their ministry as they go to the end of the earth. He says that they should seek to love the Lord with all their hearts. They should seek to love one another. Um, they should uh, humble themselves. We've talked a, lot, ta- talked a lot about that. They should humble themselves like Jesus did. They should consider themselves servants to one another and to everyone around them. Uh, they must die to themselves so that they can multiply. And they must completely abide in Jesus and rest in Jesus and depend on Jesus for the strength and grace that they're going to need. And, and so to model this for them, Jesus, their rabbi, he takes on the garb of a slave and he washes the dirty feet of his disciples in this small upper room. And this totally dumbfounds the disciples because they know that a rabbi should not be washing anybody's feet. And they further know that this is God, and she, he should not be washing anybody's feet, right? And so it's got to be the other way around, they think. They should be washing his feet. So the disciples let Jesus do this, though, because Jesus tells them they must let him wash their feet if they want to be his disciples. And when he finished doing this, Jesus stuns them again. And he tells them that one of them, whose feet he just washed, is going to betray him very soon. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, please turn with me to John 13. We'll be in verses 12 through 30. John 13, 12 to 30. Let's ask God to help us as we read his word. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word you've given us today, and we ask for your help now, because... We need the discernment and illumination of the Holy Spirit. We ask you that you would use this word that you've sovereignly appointed for this day to touch each one of us right now. You are the good shepherd. We are your sheep. You know the food that we need, and so we pray that you would feed us. Please guard us. Please protect us from Satan and his demons. Please watch over the kids next door and bless their time. I pray, God, for those of us who know you, that you would encourage us today in you, help us to be an encouragement to one another, and for those who don't know you, please work in their hearts today as they hear this message of your love for them. Call them to you with power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's begin by reading John 13, 12 through 19. 12 to 19. 
When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Since we looked at verses 12 to 17 last week, we'll pick up now at verse 18. And Jesus tells the disciples that just as he has become a humble servant for them, so also they should become humble servants for one another. And Jesus says that they will be blessed if they do this. And then Jesus adds that he's not speaking to all of them in the room because he knows whom he has chosen. In other words, Jesus knows which of these disciples believe in him and which don't. Remember, this, a lot of this language goes back to like John 10, where Jesus knows his sheep. Yes, Jesus chose all 12 of these men to follow him, but that doesn't mean that they will be with him for all eternity. In fact, Jesus has been telling the disciples for a long time that one of them is trouble. Psalm, uh, or back in uh, John 6, 70, uh, Jesus told the disciples, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Being around Christians does not make you a Christian. Attending church services, which is great, attending a community group, going to youth group, going to a Bible study, which is wonderful, does not make you a Christian. Praying with your family at mealtime and your kids at bedtime doesn't make you a Christian. Serving in the church, holding a position of leadership in the church does not make you a Christian. A person is not a Christian because of what he or she does with the people of God. Okay. A person is a Christian because he or she trusts in what Jesus has done for him or her. Okay. So God saves a person, adopts a person into his family when that person trusts in Jesus and in what Jesus has done in his life, his death and resurrection, which they could never do for themselves. Faith is the evidence, okay? Faith is the evidence that God has made a person born again. That's, what, that's the language Jesus uses in John 3. The evidence that a person has faith in Jesus is how he or she is obeying God and trusting God more and more each day by the power of the Holy Spirit. I was talking with somebody this week who... Uh, by God's grace, grew up in a strong Christian family. And the way he described his experience growing up is that his parents and his household was so filled with the light of Christ that he assumed he had the light too. This is the language he used. So the light of Christ shined so brightly in his house, he assumed the light was coming from him too. It wasn't until he moved out into the darkness of the world that he realized he needed the light of Jesus inside him 
for himself if he was going to be a Christian. It reminds me of something that happened to me while I was attending college in Laramie, Wyoming. It was the middle of wintertime, uh, and there was probably 18 inches of snow on the ground. And for some reason, I needed to make a late-night run to the store, to Walmart, which was open 24 hours a day. And in Laramie, that's, that's a big deal, okay? You go to Walmart, that's, that's the thing to do. And uh, the main road in Laramie is called Grand Avenue. And it was probably a couple of miles between my apartment and Walmart. And so I drove my Pathfinder down Grand Avenue. Snow's coming down more and more, and snow's piled high on the side of the road. And, and all along Grand Avenue are car dealerships, you know, with their bright lights, and restaurants and grocery stores. So when it snows, the bright lights from all these businesses light up the snow, and they light up the street so brightly that it almost looks like daytime even when it's nighttime. Well, about halfway to Walmart, I see some police lights behind me, and I was only going like 20 miles an hour because of the snow, and so I'm thinking, there's no way I'm getting pulled over for speeding. What is going on here? And so I, I pulled over to the side of the snowy road, and the police car pulls up behind me, and the policeman gets out of his car and walks up to my window, and I roll down my window to talk to him, and, and he shines his flashlight right into my eyes, and just stares me down for a minute. And I'm pretty sure he asked me if I'd had anything to drink. And I said no. And he shined his flashlight, you know, then he looks inside the windows of my car looking for anything suspicious. And, and then he turns off the flashlight and says, Sir, do you realize you're driving around town in the middle of the night without your lights on? I, I told the policeman, I, I had no idea. I looked down at my dash, oh, it does look pretty dark. <laughs> and I realized I never turned my headlights on. And so I told the policeman, I guess with the snow and all the bright street lights, I couldn't tell my lights were off. And he said, sir, turn your lights on. <laughs> and, uh, and so he went back to his car and thankfully I didn't get a ticket. You can be surrounded by so much light that it fools you into thinking that you're part of the light when you're really not. I don't know if Judas actually believed he was saved or if he knew he wasn't, but the point is that being surrounded by other Christians did not make Judas a Christian. Each of us must choose for ourselves whether we will trust Jesus or not. Each of us must count the cost of following Jesus and decide for ourselves whether we think he's worth it. Is this worth it? Each of us must decide whether we're going to own our faith and have a friendship with God or whether we plan on riding the coattails of our relatives until the day we die. This is a very important message for any child or teenager or adult who experienced the wonderful gift of growing up with a Christian mom or dad. Because you are blessed. You're blessed. If your parents talk about Jesus in your home, if your parents read the Bible to you, if your parents... Um, love God and you can tell by the way that they treat one another and the way that they treat you and the way that they admit their failures and their, they, they need forgiveness and the way that they get right with you. That's a blessing. And what your parents want for you more than anything in the world is for you to trust Jesus so that you can have eternal life too. Your parents can do everything in their power to point you to God, but you have to choose whether you want to follow Jesus for yourself. 
you have to choose whether you believe that Jesus is God. Whether you believe that Jesus came to earth, that he was perfect unlike you, and that he died on the cross to take away your sins forever, which you have earned and which he took from you. You have to choose whether you're going to believe that he died and then he rose again three days later. If you want God to give you eternal life, if you want to be friends with Jesus forever, pray to him and ask him to save you. Tell him that it's not working the way you do it, that you need him, and then trust your life to him, and trust your soul to him. And if you need help talking to God, I encourage you, talk, tap your mom or dad on the shoulder right now, or on the arm, or your spouse, and let them know you would like to pray with them later. And if today you trusted Jesus for the first time, then come to me. Let's talk about this. Let's celebrate that, what Jesus has done in your life by baptizing you. We did 13 baptisms a few months ago. It's just a celebration. Are you a car that's driving down the road at night with your headlights off? Or do you have your headlights on because Jesus is shining in you? In today's passage, Judas was a car driving in the dark with his headlights off. He was dangerous, and he was about to do major damage to Jesus. In the second half of verse 18, Jesus says, But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So Jesus is quoting Psalm 41. At the same time, he's fulfilling this prophecy that said that Jesus would be betrayed by one of his closest friends, one of... Uh, the people whom he had broken bread with. And then in John uh, 13, 19, Jesus says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So Jesus tells his disciples this. The reason I'm telling you that I am going to be betrayed is so that when I'm betrayed, You will believe that I am God. You will remember that I am God. I'm giving you extra evidence right now so that your faith will be boosted when trials come your way. Because guess what? It's about to get a lot harder for you. Because you're going to see me, your rabbi, I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be whipped and mocked and spat on and murdered and buried in the ground. And you're going to be tempted to believe that I am not who I said I was. So I'm telling you right now that I'm going to be betrayed by one of you. And when that happens, I want you to remember that I said it would happen because I am God. That's what Jesus is saying. He wants his disciples to persevere in their faith. Right? He wants to give them an abundance of evidence. He wants to strengthen their faith in him. He wants to give this example to them of love and self-sacrifice in order to break their hearts and to transform them so radically that they can't help but be uh, the, the same uh, examples of love and self-sacrifice to those they're taking the gospel to. In verse 20, Jesus tells his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Jesus wants the disciples to know that because they trust in him, they belong to him. They serve as his representatives to this world. And in fact, followers of Jesus are so united with Jesus 
through faith that whoever receives them, whoever receives their message, receives Jesus. And whoever receives Jesus receives God the Father who sent Jesus to earth. Being a Christian is a gift of God's grace, an incredible gift of God's grace. And being a Christian is also a major responsibility because Jesus says that Christians are his representatives, his ambassadors to the world around us. We are the messengers who take this message of salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone, by God's grace alone, to the world on behalf of him. See that? We're representing him. And of course, we're, we're, we're not going to be perfect. Uh, we cannot be perfect messengers in this life, but that's what we want to be for the sake of God's name, not for the sake of our name. And the Holy Spirit is helping us as we lean on him and work by the power of the Spirit in us. He's helping us get to that goal, but that goal won't be finally realized until we meet Jesus face to face after this life. And after telling the disciples about these profound, wonderful truths about being united to him, we read that Jesus becomes distraught again. Let's read verses 21 to 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken a morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to them. Uh, to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Judas must have put on a pretty good act around the other disciples because they were shocked when Jesus said that one of them would betray him. They didn't say, it's got to be Judas. They looked around at the table at each other trying to figure out who would do such a thing. Now John, who wrote this book, was almost positively that disciple in verse 23 described as the one whom Jesus loved. In John 13, 23, we read that John was reclining next to Jesus, which in Greek literally means that John was reclining in Jesus' bosom. So most likely John leaned back and rested his head on Jesus' chest as he talked to him. And when we read that John did this, that he laid his back, head back onto Jesus, it was not in a homosexual way, but in a brotherly way. Now because, um, besides the fact that the way that men physically touch each other varies from culture to culture around the world. For instance, real quick, when I was in Africa, it was common for men to walk down the street holding hands or just holding fingers. Strangers, like men who didn't really even know each other real well. 
Like, you know, we went, had to go get our tire filled up at the mechanics and there was a customer there and the mechanic was holding the fingers of one of his customers and they were just walking around. So it varies from culture to culture. But besides that fact, another way to understand this scene is to watch the way that professional male athletes interact with one another. You got all these testosterone-filled guys on the field or on the court. It's not uncommon to see them tap each other on the rear end or to embrace one another, to do things they would not do in any other context. Hold hands together on the sideline. And the reason why they do that is because they're tight, okay? They have a brotherhood together. They have shared blood, sweat, and tears together. Just like Jesus and his disciples had after living together for three years and walking the countryside together. That's an imperfect analogy, but it does help us better understand why Jesus and his disciples were so close. So they're laying down around this supper table. In verse 24, Simon Peter motions to John, who's sitting next to Jesus, and Peter kind of whispers. He's like, ask him who the one, who's going to betray him. Ask him. And verse 25 says that John leans back against Jesus. So they were leaning on their left arm, probably. They ate with their right, which would mean that John was right here. Jesus was here. He leans his head back onto Jesus. And he says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus emphasizes this prophecy again in Psalm 41, which talks about bread. He tells the disciples that he will give a piece of bread to the one who will betray him. And then Jesus dips a piece of bread and gives it to Judas. And Judas takes the bread. Now look, think about his reaction. Think about that. Instead of falling apart and weeping and asking Jesus for forgiveness, instead we read that Judas' hardness of heart towards Jesus is solidified as Satan actually enters into him. And up to this point, Satan has been tempting Judas He's been spurring Judas on. We know this from the other gospel accounts. But now Satan actually enters the heart of Judas in this overwhelming way. And so Jesus looks at Judas, and he's essentially looking at Satan at the same time. Okay? And he says, what you're going to do, do quickly. And verses 28 and 29 say that the disciples still don't understand what Jesus is talking about. They don't understand what Jesus is telling Judas to do. They think maybe Jesus is sending Judas out to buy some groceries for the next feast. Or maybe Jesus is sending Judas out to give some money to the poor people at the temple who would have been there late because it was Passover. Verse 30 says that Judas immediately got up, left the upper room, and Judas was on his way to meet up with the chief priests and their mob of men who would soon arrest Jesus at night and they did that at night because they knew the crowds wouldn't be around to stop it. And this is why John says at the end of verse 30, and it was night. Okay. He's pointing out darkness here. Darkness isn't light, this imagery again. He's pointing out the darkness of the world we live in. He's pointing out the darkness of Judas's heart, the darkness of the night in which all of this evil is about to take place. Jesus, the light of the world, is about to be snuffed out. As I was thinking about this passage this week, God graciously pointed something out that I, was, I want us to look at. Jesus is sharing his very last meal with his disciples, his closest companions. He's telling them, he's speaking to them from his heart. He's telling them his thoughts and feelings. 
And when you look at this scene, you see an incredible contrast between how Judas relates to Jesus and how John relates to Jesus. See, both Judas and John have just had their feet washed by God. They're sharing a meal with God on God's last night on earth, and Judas despises Jesus while John embraces Jesus. And the contrast between the spiritual darkness of Judas and the spiritual light of John is very significant for you and me. When we look at these two men, which one do we want to be? On the last day, when you will meet Jesus face to face, which one will you be? Judas or John? Will you reject Jesus just as you always have? Or will you rest on Jesus? Obviously, there's all sorts of reasons why these men might have felt the way they did about Jesus. So as we try to analyze that, we want to be careful not to read into the text. We want to look at the text and draw out what is there. And from what we read so far in John's gospel, there appears to be more information about Judas than John. So let's start with Judas. In John 6, 64, Jesus says, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So Jesus knew from the beginning of his ministry that Judas would never believe in him and also that Judas would betray him. And as we mentioned earlier, Judas was close to God's people here, but he wasn't close to God. Judas was a student of Jesus, but he was not a believer in Jesus. Now regarding Judas's vices, we know that Judas loved money. John 12, 6 says that Judas didn't care about the poor. He was greedy, and his greed even led him to steal money. He was a thief, John says. He was in charge of the money for the disciples, and he would help himself to their money whenever he wanted to. So that means that Judas regularly stole from Jesus and his disciples, and he knew it was wrong. And this was not a one-time sin. It was a habit of unrepentant sin. Often when you read the, the Gospels, you see these two words together, repent and believe. Believing is trusting in Jesus. Repentance is the flip side of that coin, which means turning away from your sin and turning to Jesus, right? It means realizing in your mind, that is wrong. I don't want that anymore. I want Jesus. So a person who's unrepentantly sinful keeps sinning, might see that their sin is wrong, and keeps doing it. And is not remorseful, does not change, just keeps doing the sin instead of turning to faith in Jesus. <clears throat> As we study Judas here, now, I don't want us to leave here today saying, well, man, that, that Judas was a real scumbag. I'm sure glad I'm not like him. Instead, I want to look at Judas and study him and then study ourselves in order to figure out, man, am I similar to Judas in any way? I want to do that so that we can confess our own sin if we see that and repent of our sin as we turn to faith in Jesus. So let's, see, let's do a little analysis comparing ourselves to Judas here from what we know about him. Like Judas, do you and I love 
money? Are we infatuated with all things related to our finances and possessions and investments? Is our money what we're banking on, what we're leaning on, really? Are we so into money that we spend more time and energy thinking about money than we think about God? Like Judas, are you and I greedy? What do we have? Do we share it? Do we really share Do we lend our things out to others often and freely? Do we really believe that everything we own is on loan to us from God? Or do we really believe everything I own actually belongs to me? Are we financially greedy? Do we give our money to others freely and often and gladly? Or are we selfish and we hoard it all for ourselves? Like Judas, are we robbing God of money that belongs to him? Do we regularly and intentionally give money to the Lord because we want to and because he tells us to? Are we not merely sinful in how we value our money and possessions, but are we, like Judas, unrepentantly sinful? That means we've acknowledged our sinfulness, but we haven't changed anything about it. We know we're sinning, but we're okay with that, so we keep on sinning. There's all sorts of ways we justify ourselves, right? Compare ourselves to other people. Well, they're worse than me. I can keep doing this. That appears to be exactly what Judas did. He, he knew it was wrong to steal from the money bag, but it didn't stop him from doing it, and he did it over and over and over again. The reason we bring this up is you see this throughout the New Testament and, and the Old Testament. Unrepentant sin is extremely serious to God. Okay? If you and I are followers of Christ, then we need to pray to God, God, please show me the unrepentant sins in my life. And he'll do this using his word, if you read it, and or using the Holy Spirit and or mature Christians, because this is why. He cares about you, and unrepentant sin will destroy you and others. Okay? And in fact, unrepentant sin might be evidence that you're not actually saved at all, even though you thought you were. That's the way that this reads in 1 John 3, 9. It says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So that verse, that verse should wake us up. <laughs> no, it's waking me up several times in my life. It says the people who belong to Jesus do not make a practice of sinning. They cannot make a practice of sinning because the Holy Spirit's in them. Now, I don't know about you. I want to know now if there are areas in my life where I'm being unrepentant. I don't want to find out when I meet Jesus face to face. I want to know now because I want to weed that out so that I can follow Jesus now. Psalm 139, 23 to 24 is a great passage to pray to God. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous or offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So it starts with a simple prayer, one sentence like this. Ask the Lord to show you specific sins in your life that you need to repent of. It could be arrogance. It could be anger, it could be lust, pride, greed, it could be gossip, it 
could be unforgiveness, it could be faithlessness, or lots of other sins that we see in God's Word. Ask the Lord, Lord to search your heart, to search your mind, to show you anything offensive in you that you consistently do. And besides reading your Bible to learn what sin is, besides asking God to show you your specific sins, you can also ask godly friends and mentors in your life if they receive unrepentant sin in your life. But let me tell you, if you're even thinking about doing that, you better humble yourself first and resolve beforehand not to be angry with your mature Christian friend for giving you the feedback that you asked for. Regarding Judas, besides his greed and his unrepentant sinfulness, we know that he did not value Jesus. Okay? He went to the chief priests before the Last Supper and essentially told them, you can have him. I don't want him. I don't want Jesus. So here we see Judas spending time railing against Jesus with non-Christians. Does that describe you? Railing against Jesus and his church? If so, then repent and turn to Jesus. We also know from this passage that Judas was two-faced. He was a Christian in one place and he was a devil in another place. He was so good at playing the Christian games that even his fellow disciples were stunned to learn that he didn't actually even believe in Jesus. Does that sound like you? Have you fooled all your Christian friends? Have you fooled this church? Have you fooled your peers into thinking you're a believer when you actually live a life in the darkness for most of the time? Jesus says, repent from your sin and come to me. Trust in me. These are the kinds of sins that hardened Judas's heart to Jesus. And his heart probably wasn't hardened all at once. It probably started with a sin here, a sin there. And then it started kind of becoming a pattern. And then it became a habit. And then his desires for sin became even more warped. And Satan hopped on. Spurred him on until finally Judas rejected and even betrayed God himself. I don't think anybody in this room would say they want to be like Judas. But... This is what we need to know, that our hearts will become hard, just like Judas's heart, if we don't turn to God in faith, if we don't ask him to guide us. Lord, guide me. I'm serious about this. Show, show me in your word, God. Holy Spirit, please talk to me. Please put pe godly people in my life who are chasing after you just to help corral me and lead me to you, Jesus. That's what I want. Now contrast Judas, okay, in his faithlessness and in his unrepentant sinfulness with the faith and devotion of John sitting at the same table. We don't have time right now to survey the entire life of John, so let's just look at what we know about John in this passage and from this gospel according to John. We know that John was always close to Jesus. Physically. He was considered one of the inner three disciples who were often right next to Jesus during the most important events of Jesus' life. And of the inner three, Jesus has a unique love for John. John is referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. Jesus, or sorry, John was, I, uh, I think that, sorry, Jesus was kind of like a big brother to John. 
and at the same time, Jesus was his God. Jesus loved and trusted John so much that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he gave his mother Mary to John and told him to take care of her. And from that day forward, Jesus' mom, Mary, lived with John, and he took care of her like he would his own mother. Remember that in John 13, 23, we read John was reclining next to Jesus, which in Greek literally means he was reclining in Jesus' bosom. So most likely John leaned back and rested his head on Jesus' chest as he talked to him. What a picture of friendship with God. This is what God wants for you and me. Think about that. This isn't about John. This is about you and me and what God's done for us. Resting your head on God's chest while you talk to him. God's not a cold, disconnected, invisible force. He's a living being who loves and feels and relates to us and interacts with us. And the kind of closeness that John has with Jesus is the exact same kind of closeness that Jesus wants you to have with him. This is what Jesus died for. To take away the separation from God so that now we can confidently come close to God and rest our head on his heart and talk to him as our loving heavenly father who's adopted us into his family with his own blood. How awesome and loving is that? How awesome is God? It's incredible. Look at John's relationship with Jesus and look at Judas's relationship with Jesus. Which kind of relationship with Jesus do you want to have? And more important than that, look at Jesus here. See, Judas was sinful, but so was John. Neither one of them treasured Jesus or loved Jesus or obeyed Jesus like they should have. They both betrayed Jesus to varying degrees because of their own sin, just like you and I have. But the good news of Jesus, and he's, even though we have betrayed him, he will never betray us. You see that? You see this contrast. J Jesus is totally betrayed. But he says, I will never betray my church. I'll never betray those who trust in me. Jesus was forsaken by the world. Even though he was forsaken by the world, by our sin, he was forsaken by God the Father on the cross when, when he was separated from him. Jesus will never forsake his children or his church. And he promises that. He promises his people several times in Scripture, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. This is God's heart. This is the heart of God that makes us want to turn away from sin. It makes us want to turn away from the temporary evil pleasures of this world because the pleasure of God is so much greater. This is the heart of God. Jesus' faithfulness to us is exactly what compels us to run back to him and to confess to him and to confess to one another and to receive forgiveness again and be reconciled to one another because of what Jesus has done for us. If you belong to Jesus, he will never turn his back on you, ever. On the contrary, he bids you to draw near to him and to rest your head on his chest. 
This week, I want you to spend time being vulnerable to Jesus, talking to Jesus, draw near to Jesus. Rest your head on Jesus' chest and soak it in that he loves you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are, for bringing your light to the darkness so that we can come to you and be saved and be in relationship with you. It uh, is mind-blowing that you are you're so much more than this world says you are. You are real. You are a real loving being who died for us and who wants friendship for eternity with us and who's made that possible for us by shedding your blood so that ours wouldn't be shed. It, um, I pray, God, for those of us today who, who know you and need encouragement, God, and need our, on the one hand, maybe some of us need a wake-up call and say, this stuff that I've been doing, this habit that I have is not healthy, it's not good, and I need to turn from it. So, Lord, please help me turn from it. And some of us today, God, need to be reminded that following you isn't about jumping through all the hoops and beating ourselves up when we don't meet up to your standard. It's about acknowledging we'll never meet up to the standard. But you did, and you do, and you died for us, and you've credited us with meeting that standard when we trusted in you. Thank you, God, that that promise, that assurance, that finished work is always there, and it will be for eternity. Encourage us this week as we pursue a friendship with you, God. Thank you for caring about us and for being there for us. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.